Good recovery there, Dana. Thanks for pulling me out. <laughs> Carl Gustav Boberg. Main name may not mean anything to you, but he was a Swedish pastor. He was an editor, and he was a member of the Swedish parliament. And he was out walking one day at the edge of the bay, and a thunderstorm came up pretty much out of nowhere, and um, he had to take cover, and, and just as quickly as the thunderstorm blew in, it blew out. And he's looked out across the clear bay, and he began to see the stars. He heard a church bell ring, and he's heard, as he heard the church bell ring, the words slowly began to come to his mind. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. He said there was such a calmness after the storm's passing. And, and so this was really not written as a hymn, it was written as a poem called O Great God. Later it was translated into German, and then from the German translation it was translated into Russian. There was a British missionary by the name of Stuart K. Hine who was in the western Ukraine serving as a missionary. He translated it into English. He translated the poem into English, and he and his wife put the words to a song at an evangelistic meeting during the time of World War I. Later it would come to America. Um, but Hine is the one who wrote the fourth verse that we just sang. The first three were written by Boberg in the poem, but the fourth verse was written as a triumphant message of eternal life. Now, a few weeks ago, I introduced you to a couple of guys named Josh Arnett and Aaron Gray, friends since the age of 13, grew up singing in the church choir, known as the Singing Contractors. And I shared with you how um, one of them, I think it was Aaron, had the idea that they work, they work in people's homes as contractors, and they like to sing gospel music while they're working. And so one day, Aaron decided, hey, let's put this on Facebook. And his friend's like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Well, he said Aaron did it anyhow. He, he recorded it, and it was amazing what happened. Um, it went viral. Within one month, they had 15 million views. The, the, the very first song they recorded was just the chorus of How Great Thou Art. So I wanted you to see it tonight on how these guys got started, the singing contractors. So.
I'd let those guys work on my house. I don't know about you. Um, we're in a series, The Great Hymns of the Faith. And of course, tonight is How Great Thou Art. Take your Bibles and open to the prophet Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, there are any number of texts that we could have chosen tonight that talk about the greatness of God. Because, I mean, really the entirety of Scripture is about the greatness of God. Uh, but this is a verse that, uh, that spoke to me as I prayed and studied about, about this sermon. And so it's Jeremiah 32, verse 17. I invite you to stand as we read God's Word. Jeremiah is praying for understanding here. And verse, at the end of verse 16, he says, I prayed to the Lord, saying, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. As we think about how great God is, tonight I, wanna, I want us to think about the question, is there anything too hard for God to do? A children's Sunday school teacher had been teaching about God's greatness and Decided she'd wrap the lesson up by, by asking the question, is there anything too hard for God to do? Well, without much hesitation, the little boy raised his hand. She was kind of perplexed because she thought, well, surely they all understand after this that, there's, that God can do anything. And, and so she finally called on him. She said, you really think there's something God can't do? And he said, well, no, my dad does. My dad says even God can't please everybody. And so uh, that may be the only thing that God can't do. Is there anything too difficult for God? Now, what's interesting is this question is asked twice in Scripture, but it's, asked, it's not asked to God. It's not asked about God. It's asked by God. Did you know that? The only two times it's asked, it's asked by God himself. Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham under the terebinth tree. The Lord appears to him there, and he announces to him that he's going to have a baby. And Abraham's 100, and Sarah's 90. And the Scripture says that Sarah laughed within herself. Now, it doesn't say she laughed out loud. It says she laughed within herself. And in verse 14 of that chapter, the Lord asked why Sarah laughed. And then he says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Now, look in verse 27 of Jeremiah 32. In, in, verse, um, in verse 17, Jeremiah says, there's nothing too hard for you. In verse 27, God responds by saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And so God's the one who asked the question twice. He's omniscient. What's that mean? There's nothing he doesn't know. He's omnipotent. That means there's nothing he can't do. He's omnipresent. There's no place that he doesn't exist. So two things tonight from the sermon. This isn't a Baptist sermon because there's not three points, okay? There's only two. First, God's power is unlimited. God's power is unlimited. And as we think about that, what are the ramifications of, of that statement that God's power is unlimited? Well, to me, it means several things. One, it means that there is no promise that God can't keep. There's no promise he can't keep. I read today in one place that said there were 8,810 promises in the scriptures. 
Another place I read, there are over 30,000 promises in Scripture. I don't know how many promises there are, but every single promise God has either already kept, is keeping, or will keep. There's not a single promise of God that will not be kept. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. In other words, he's going to keep all the promises. Now, he, um, man doesn't keep all their promises, but God does. Numbers 23.19, God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You know, sometimes storms hit in your life, and when they do, about the only thing that can keep you going is God's promises. About the only thing you can cling to are the promises of God. Solomon, the Scripture says he's the wisest man ever. In um, 1 Kings 8, he's been praying. And, and been praying in front of God's people. And after the prayer is over, he stands before the people in 1 Kings eight fifty six, And here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. And so when we say that God is all-powerful, one of the implications of that is there's not a promise that he can't or won't keep. The second implication of that is there's no prayer that he can't or won't answer. No prayer that God cannot answer. The Bible repeatedly tells us that that, that is true. Let me just give you a few references. Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me and I might answer you. That's not what he says, is it? Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who if a son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Phillips Brooks was a pastor in the 1800s, and he made one of the best statements that I've ever heard or read about prayer. It's a single sentence. Here's what he said. Nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies outside the will of God. Did you get that? Nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies outside the will of God. In other words, the only thing that, that, is out, the only thing that, that will not be answered is that which is outside of God's will. What is the greatest power known on earth? Nuclear power? Atomic power? What's the, the greatest power is prayer power. I mean, think about it. It really is. Because prayer can do anything that God can do because God can do anything. So it's prayer power. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, we'll look at that here in a few weeks, he said this. This wasn't in a poem, but, but he wrote this. I mean, it wasn't in a hymn, but he wrote this. Thou art coming to a king large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power is such that you can never ask too much and i like that there, there, when you say god's all-powerful there's no prayer that he cannot answer 
No promise he cannot keep. There's a third implication, though, by saying that. There's no problem he can't solve. Anybody here have any problems tonight? Well, let, let, let me ask it this way. Anybody here don't know of any problems at all that you have tonight? That, that's probably the better way of, of asking it. Um, there's no problem that's too hard for the Lord to solve. Now, he doesn't always solve them the way that we want to. I mean, when we ask him, we kind of have an idea how we want him to answer it. And he doesn't always answer it that way, but he still solves the problem. You may be wondering, Pastor Tom, do you have any problems? Only twice a day. That's it. When I'm awake and when I'm asleep. It's the only time I have any problems. Everybody has problems. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might or you could. He said you will. So two statements. Everybody has problems, and everybody has problems that only God can solve. Do you have, do you have some money problems that are outside of your ability to solve? If so, go to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills because he can solve it. Do, do you have um, marriage problems? Then go to the one who officiated the very first wedding and ask him for some counsel and advice. Do you have um, a sin problem? Then go to the one who is the only one who has the ability to take a person and make a new creation out of them. L.R. Scarborough was the second president of Southwestern Seminary. And, and, and while I mentioned Southwestern Seminary, I would ask your prayers. I'm a trustee at Southwestern Seminary, my alma mater, and, and next Tuesday there's a special called trustee meeting that is, that is pretty important and significant in the life of our seminary, and I'll be flying out there next Tuesday morning for the meeting, and I would just covet your prayers next Tuesday if, if you don't mind. The meeting will start at 1.30, and um, it, it'll be getting a lot of publicity, a lot of press coverage, and so just pray for wisdom. But L.R. Scarborough, who was the second president, of the seminary and was also an evangelism professor and he had both jobs at the same time for 27 years he was once preaching on Jonah and his son was listening intently when the sermon was over and he he, he was going home with his son the son looked up at him and he said dad do you really believe that story do you really believe that a fish could swallow a man and keep him alive for three days Scarborough said well Son, if, if God can create a man and God can create a fish, then I think God can create a fish that can swallow a man and keep him alive for three days. The son kind of shook his head and he said, well, if you're going to bring God into it, that's different. <laughs> Listen, friend, you take any problem you have and if you bring God into it, he can solve it. I mean, he can fix it. Oscar C. Eliasson wrote a hymn called God Any Rivers. I've, I've never heard of this hymn. Have you ever heard of that hymn, Dana? It's called God Any Rivers, but here's the chorus to it. God any rivers you think are uncrossable? God any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in doing things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. No problem, he cannot solve. Let me tell you a fourth thing. When we say God's all-powerful, that means there's no person that God cannot save. Some of you have been praying for somebody for years to be saved. And, and you, you may have already given up, or you're thinking, man, there's no way they're ever 
going to be saved. Let me just tell you, if God is all-powerful, that means there's nobody that he cannot save. No person on earth is so good they don't need to be saved, and no person on earth is so bad that they cannot be saved. Everybody's in the middle there. I'll give you an example. If we were to think, who'd be the hardest man in the New Testament to see saved? It's interesting to me that the most difficult man in the New Testament to imagine being saved became the greatest Christian who walked the face of the earth. Now, I said Christian, not greatest person, because Christ was greater. But, but Saul of Tarsus, would, if, if you'd have said to the first century church, who is the le- who'd, be most le- who'd be voted least likely to be saved? He would have won in a landslide. One night on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute, he meets the Lord. I mean, he hated the very name of Jesus. His mission was to prosecute and persecute the church. The scripture tells us in Acts that he held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen, one of the first deacons, the first martyr, when they stoned him to death. Saul of Tarsus held the coats of those men. But he meets Jesus and he's gloriously saved. So the church's greatest persecutor becomes the greatest preacher. The church's greatest foe becomes the church's greatest friend. And I personally think he was thinking of his own life when he wrote Romans chapter 10 in verse 13. And he said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I I think he had his own life in mind. What he was saying is, listen, friend, if God can save me, he can save whoever calls on his name. One of the very first revivals that I ever preached was when I was in college. I worked two summers for the Florida Baptist Convention doing uh, college student-led revivals. They'd pair you up with a music guy, and you'd travel with them all summer long. And you would do three-day, four-day, or seven-day revivals, and they, you preached all summer. And um, I remember going to—it was one of the very first ones, the first of the two summers I did it. It was the First Baptist Church, Perry, Florida, which is about 55 miles south of Tallahassee. And um, just a little— Hole in the wall town, and First Baptist Church is right there on the main road, and and I mean it was it was a it was a country church, good people, and I remember that there was this one girl that I mean she just she just she looked out of it every service. So on Sunday we start on Sunday morning after the Sunday night service. I asked the preacher about her. We were at dinner, and I said, "Tell me about this this lady. She's in her twenties." I said, "Tell me about what what's going on with her because something just doesn't seem right." And he said he said, "Well, she's a." She's a drug addict. She's living with her boyfriend who beats her up. And uh, I've shared the gospel with her. I can't tell you how many times. And she just refuses to be saved. He said, I'm thinking maybe she's hardened her heart too hard that she'll never be saved. Well, I kind of took that as a challenge. And so the next night, I preached. And and we had a fellowship afterwards. And their little fellowship hall um, was disconnected from the church. And there was a bench right outside underneath the light. And she was sitting out there, and so I sat down next to her. And I began to talk to her, and I, and I found out that, that she really believed that she had gone too far to be saved, that there was no way that God loved her, and that there was no way that she could be saved. And so I walked her through some Scripture verses, and, and it wasn't me, it was the Holy Spirit that was doing it, but I walked her through some Scripture verses and showed her that God loved her and that He loved her immensely, that, that He loved her enough that He would send Jesus to die because He would rather die than live without her. And gave her the opportunity to be saved. And right there on the bench, seated next to me, she prayed to accept Christ. She pulled some drugs out of her purse and gave them to me. said, I don't need these anymore. I thought, man, this is great. 
preacher told me later that night, he said, well, we'll see if it sticks. Kind of pessimistic, you know. So I called him a few weeks later. I just wanted to find out if it stuck. And I said, tell me about so-and-so. You know, did she follow through, get back? He said, you're not going to believe this. I said, tell me. He said, um, she went home and told her boyfriend that unless he gave his heart to the Lord, they were finished. And she shared with him the gospel. And he was raised in a Jewish home, and he prayed that night to accept Christ. He said, I've baptized both of them. I said, well, praise the Lord. He said, but it gets better. He called his parents who live in Miami, and he told them what had happened to him, and they could tell the difference over the phone. They could hear the change in his voice. They wanted to know what changed him, and they now have accepted Christ as their Savior. Friend, if God is all-powerful, that means there is no one that he cannot save. Don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep loving them. God's power is unlimited. Now, the second point is going to seem maybe contrary to the first point. But if you'll let me, I think I'll be able to make the case spiritually. Man has the ability to limit God's power. God's power is unlimited, but man has the ability to limit God's power. Did you know it was possible to limit God's power? In Psalm 78, 41, it's talking about Ephraim, and here's what it says. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. If God has unlimited power, and he does, and there's nothing that he can't do, and there isn't, then how can you limit God? I mean, think about it. He's the one who flung the stars into space. He's the one who put water into the oceans. He's the one who raised up the mountains. He literally spoke the worlds into existence. And so how can you limit the Holy One of Israel? In Matthew 13, well, let, let, me, let me point out, first of all, how do we limit God? Number one, we limit God through unbelief, by our unbelief. In Matthew 13, Jesus is back at his hometown of Nazareth. And he's teaching with clarity and authority. And they ask the question, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the son of Mary? You know, is this that same little kid that we saw running around here through the years? But what I want you to hear is Matthew 13, verse 58. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Their unbelief limited Jesus' ability to do works there. Listen, if we don't have faith, it's impossible to please God. That's what Hebrews says. Without, Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So we make a profession of our faith, and then he works in our life. You can't be, a, you can't be saved apart from faith. For by faith are you saved through grace, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Listen, God cannot save you, and he will not save you unless you believe and receive Christ by faith. It's the only way to be saved. Think about this. You can believe that you are a sinner. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you can believe that if you ask him to, he will save you and still die lost and go to hell. Because knowing those things 
doesn't save you. Doesn't matter what you believe in your head, it's what you receive in your heart. Have you received the Lord as your Savior? So we limit God by our unbelief. Secondly, we limit God by being unwilling. By being unwilling. Do you remember in Matthew 23, the triumphal entry? Jesus is riding, you know, that he's had the disciples go and they bring the, the colt of the donkey and Jesus is riding. And if you remember the story, and, and this will add some insight to some of you who were just over in Israel at the Mount of Olives. About halfway down the Mount of Olives, Jesus, the scripture says, he stopped and he weeps. He weeps. He's about to enter Jerusalem on the triumphal entry and he stops the procession and he weeps. Here's what verse 37 says. Records the words of Jesus. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. Unwillingness binds the hands of Jesus. It stops Jesus from being able to act and work in your life. See, our willingness, we, we have to get to the place where we're like Jesus in the Garden of Eden where we say, not my will, but thy will be done. See, because I don't know about you, but most of the time when I'm praying, it's my will be done. You know, I go to God and I've got, I've got some requests and I've also got some suggestions on how he should answer them. But we need to get to the place where we say, Lord, answer it however you want. You know, Sunday after Sunday, we have an invitation right here. And I believe, I personally believe the Holy Spirit has been speaking to hearts because God says about his word that it will not return void. And so I believe that God is speaking to people and yet people don't respond. Why? Because they are unwilling. You have the will to say yes. You have the will to say no. There's some who would suggest that God's grace is irresistible, that you cannot say no. In essence, what they're saying is that uh, you're going to be saved if you want to or not. And in, in all honesty, they would probably say you're going to want to because you're part of the elect. But I believe that we have the ability to say no to the Lord. Jesus said, I wanted to, but you were unwilling. We limit the power of God when we are unwilling. We limit the power of God when we have unbelief. Third, we limit the power of God by being unconcerned. By being unconcerned. In Revelations 2 and 3, Jesus, is, he writes the seven letters to the seven churches. And in chapter 3, it's the church at Laodicea. And uh, verse 20, we read these words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. All right. If you know this church, this is the church that was lukewarm. Jesus tells them I, uh, before this, he said, I wish that you were hot or cold. You know, some of you like hot coffee. I liked iced coffee, but neither one of us like lukewarm coffee. Right? Jesus said, but because you are lukewarm, he says, I will spew or spit you out of my mouth. But listen, the, the Greek word is more graphic than that. Jesus said, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's what he says. In other words, he says, because you are lukewarm, you make me sick. Now, the important thing to remember is, even though there's application to a lost person here, and you know, I believe the Holy Spirit can use Scripture verses in different ways, and there is application, I believe, to a lost person here, Jesus is speaking to the church. 
He's not talking to the, specifically to the lost person. He's talking to the lukewarm church. He's knocking at the door of the church, and he's willing to set the church on fire to make them hot again, but they're unconcerned. They are lukewarm. We would say that the church at Laodicea is just kind of coasting. You guys remember Holman Hunt's painting? When he made this painting, someone said to him, you've made a mistake. He said, what mistake? And he said, they said, there's no door handle. And Hunt said, there's a door handle, it's just on the inside. Jesus isn't going to break the door down. He wants the church to open the door. He wants the individual to open the door. We have to be concerned. Concerned about what? Concerned about the lost? We have to be concerned about those at Eastwood who have left their first love, those who are unconcerned. How much of God do you have tonight? How much of God do you have? All you want. No more, no less. You have as much of God tonight as you want. If you're thinking, man, I need more God, then that's on you. You have to want it. You have to desire it. You have to be concerned enough to seek it. A fourth way we limit God's power is by being unreasonable. If you're unreasonable, you can limit God's power in your life. God knew this, and so in Isaiah 1, verse 18, it says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So God has, we have this God-given ability to reason, to think things through. Now, a reasonable person would look at it this way. God is willing and will for, enable, and all, any other word you want to describe it, to forgive your sins. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. A reasonable person would say, you know what, man, I got a long list of sins. And if putting my faith in Jesus, because I know I can't do anything about him, if putting my faith in Jesus is what is going to ultimately take care of my sins, then... I'm going to do that. I'm going to put my hope and my trust and my faith in him. That's the reasonable thing to do. You ever heard somebody that's unreasonable about the Lord? I'll give you an example. I'm not going to church because I was made to as a child. You ever heard that? My dad actually used to say that for years. He didn't really get back into church until I started pastoring. And then, even then it wasn't until they, they moved to Morristown, Tennessee, where I was the pastor. Kind of if you're, if you're the pastor's son, you kind of have to go to church, you know. And same when they moved over here. You know, they, but he, he used to say, I, I'm not going to church because I was made to as a kid. Well, when somebody says that, they're being unreasonable. I'll bet their parents made them bathe also. God help us if they stop bathing because they were forced to as a child, right? Or, or another example, I'm not going because they're hypocrites at the church. Well, one more won't hurt. I mean, that's the way you answer that. One more is not going to hurt. Listen, there are hypocrites everywhere. If you find, if you have in your wallet several hundred dollar bills and you find that one of them is a counterfeit, are you going to burn all your money? Well, you know, one of them's fake and so I'm just done with it all. No, you're not going to do that. 
All right? And, and so it's just, it's just an unreasonable excuse. Or, I'd like, to go to, I'd like to become a Christian, but I'd have to give up too much. There's a lot of people that think that way. You know, I don't, I don't want to give up everything that I'd have to in order to become a Christian. The only thing that God will ask you to give up is that which, which hurts you. All right? It's kind of like saying, you know, I'd like to be healed, but I don't want to give up my cancer. I, I think I just want to hold on to it just a little bit. Nobody's going to say that. The only thing God asks from us is that which will hurt us. People who are unreasonable will one day, if they don't, if they don't change, will stand before God and they will say, what a fool I have been. There's one more way we limit the power of God, and that's by being unclean. Or being unclean. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. See, sin will stop God from working in your life. Sin will limit God's power being used and revealed in your life. I believe that the Lord will answer every prayer he hears. Now, again, you know, sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's go, sometimes it's woe. I mean, you answer different ways. But he will answer every prayer that he hears, but he doesn't hear every prayer. Because I'm convinced the only prayer of a lost person that God hears is, I'm a sinner, save me. I think it's Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear me. Okay? Here, same thing. If, if, we have, if we have sin, iniquity separate us from God so that he doesn't hear. Isaiah says sin in the life of the believer stops God from hearing us. And so let me ask you tonight, are you limiting God's power in your life? Are you? Tonight, if you're here without Christ, you're doing it by being either by being unbelieving or by being unreasonable or being unwilling to be saved. But probably the vast majority of us are believers. And so let me ask you tonight, are you limiting God's power? And the way you do that is by being unconcerned. Maybe you've just become complacent. Maybe you've just put it in neutral and you're just coasting home. That's lukewarm. That's not what God desires. God wants us to finish the race. And so tonight, if you are unconcerned, you need to be concerned. All right? And if you are unclean, you need to be clean. And the way you do that is you just confess to the Lord your sin. And he'll repent of it. And if you repent of it, he'll forgive you. David committed all kinds of sin all at one time. Go read, I believe it's um, Psalm 59. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 59 is what he wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed. And Nathan confronted him and said, You're the man, David, that did this atrocity. And so tonight, if, you're, if you feel like you're unclean, go, go read Psalm 59 and read it as a prayer. Because that's how David wrote it. Read it as a prayer and ask God to do that in your life. Father, I pray now that we would be responsive to the, to the drawing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're not responding to this pastor or to this church. We're simply responding 
to the pull, to the, the, the yearning, the, the, the drawing of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, may we be obedient to that call. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.